following is a conversation with Timothy Lynch. Tim is Professor in American Politics and Associate Dean at the University of Melbourne. This is his second time on the podcast. When we first spoke, we looked at the Cold War and discussed Tim's latest book, In the Shadow of the Cold War, American Foreign Policy from George Bush Senior to Donald Trump. In this conversation, we look more specifically at the current tensions between the US and the CCP. If you like this conversation, don't forget to like and subscribe and to follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Yeah, sending this one out to my man Killer B. So just to jump right into it, just how bad are tensions right now between China and the US? Well, I think it it lacks so on the on the positive side, I think the optimistic side, what we lack is an obvious spark in if you exclude Taiwan which I'll come back to. I think if you compared it to the Soviet Union and and the last Cold War proper, I think what you haven't got is an obvious geographic fault line in the same way as we have as the US had with the Soviet Union. So the whole the the armed camps facing each other in Berlin and across mainland Europe, that is not replicated in the current setting. So it's hard to see how an episode of territorial movement from either side will actually man- would manifest itself into a into a larger conflict that said i think we're in a in a peculiar moment when there are perceptions on the chinese side of american weakness and possibly an exaggeration on the american side of chinese strength and that could have if that psychological misconception is allowed to condition both sides. You could get an episode in which you, you move from armed peace to hot war, but I'm still confident to get to keep coming back to the analogy with the Soviet Union. The key difference here, in terms of the two rivals, is that the two rivals now are so interwoven into the fabric of the other, economically, financially that it's hard to see what interest would be served through hot war. Okay, the, it might be cyber conflict and colder war and espionage, but an actual hot war or a nuclear exchange, it's not impossible to imagine, but I think it's much harder to see how that would answer the, the national interests of either party. So I'd rather cold war than, we all bemoan cold war, don't we? I'd rather cold war than hot war, and I'd rather two sides that have a greater interest in in have a lot to lose um, than in one side being given an incentive to act against the other. So I'm cautiously optimistic without being certain. What are some of the factors and events that have led to this psychological misconception from the US and China about each other? 
But I think these are, are both uh, of immediate gestation and also long-term long um, gestation. I think that immediately what you have is COVID. It's only taken a few minutes, of course, to get to COVID as a, as a framing uh, issue for, for both sides. Um, you've got at the, at the in the current moment an American political system and wider polity, which is which is sceptical, significantly sceptical of Chinese communist good faith of, of, its, of its fair dealing, which COVID has magnified, um, in part created, but certainly magnified distrust that was there, that this is a, a closed system that speaks in you know, these vague, the language of peace and cooperation, but actually when it, when push comes to shove, is capable of duplicity and uh, plagiarism and and uh, concealment and all the other caricatures and stereotypes that America has had towards China for 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 a very long time. That's the immediate setting. The longer term f- framing, I think, Julius, is uh, the United States is currently run by men and women who achieved their political maturation um, in the Cold War, in the immediate post-Cold War era. So it's not a huge leap, I think, to imagine that they see the confrontation in the terms presented by the Cold War as a a significantly ideological opponent, carrying the same ideological baggage, communism, the same bearded philosopher Karl Marx as as the great hero organizing against American power in much the same way, inspired by some of the same zeal, one could contend, as the Soviet Union itself. Now, I think that can be exaggerated and overplayed, but I also think it informs something of the, the, the relationship. A, a big power wedded to a different version of where mankind should go, armed and powerful, uh, well, America isn't necessarily going to come into conflict with with that kind of regime. Well, is it too simplistic then to say that the Western world should emulate sort of the Churchillian anti-appeasement attitude of the 1930s or is the situation far more complicated than the threat we faced in the 1930s? Well, I think it's, it's obviously more complicated in, in the sense that the interdependence of, of both nations and the, and, the, and the global system in which they are the two largest economies makes notions of, a, of appeasement or of confrontation really rather difficult. Uh, I mean, Germany start, is an important analogue, I think, 30s Germany is an important analogue, a rising power, revisionist power, challenging the status quo. I think that takes us only so far. A, a, a rising power with a notion of its own historical greatness and uniqueness uh, that sees itself uh, gypped by the existing power structures, thinks in some way America is, is more pusillanimous, more uh, internally corrupt than may actually turn out to be the case. These are both mistakes, I think, that rising powers often make vis-a-vis the US over the last 120, 30 plus years. So I, I definitely think we're 
there is an analog that can be applied. I just think it's much more complicated than that now. I don't think China, unlike Nazi Germany, I don't think communist China has a vested interest in the collapse of American capitalism. I mean, where will its remarkable productive capacities, the, the people of China, where, where is their market if uh, America falls away? That relationship is what, what presents so many complexities and some, some reason for hope, I think, that both sides want the other to exist um, because it suits their interests far more than, than the collapse of, collapse of one and victory of the other. That's where I think the 30s and Second World War analogy starts to, starts to break down. And not least, not to digress, of course, but one of the key agents against in the demise of fascism in its in its japanese and uh, and german variants was chinese power um and we often forget that that it was a very close relationship that britain australia america had with china of course pre 49 but i think the 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 the, the point still holds that this is not necessarily uh, and always an opponent it's been a very important ally in, in some respects, and a key ally um, since the 1970s in the demise of Soviet communism itself, rather ironically. America's bringing it in. So it, it's not simply one camp is evil and the other is good, and the good must stand uh, against the bad or appease the bad. It's, it's much more complicated than that. Well, you've made the point to me before on the last podcast we did that Xi Jinping's number one concern is keeping China unified. And is it possible that, I mean, there's nothing more unifying than a war. When you go, I mean, if, if he wants to keep China together, I think a calculation he might make is that he actually has to flex his muscles and uh, break out into a hot war. I just wonder whether he's, he's going to prioritise, you know, a future economic problem. If them, China and America's economies are so intertwined, he might think, well, that's a lesser of two evils if my country's not going to be unified anymore, so I'm going to go to war. So that's kind of, I just don't think, I think Xi Jinping obviously cares about the economy as much as any leader would, but I just worry that his calculation is going to be more vested in conducting a hot war to keep his country unified. What do you think about that? Well, I, I buy some of the logic of it. I just think it's not borne out by, by the history of that regime that it's extremely sceptical of military engagement. It hasn't had a hot war since 1979, and that was a a humiliating failure in in Vietnam. Um, And before that, it it, it suffered uh, defeat at the hands of the Soviet Union in, in the late 60s and fought itself to a standstill in Korea in 53. So it's... If if any Chinese leader is looking for a hot war as a way of realising internal stability, he is going to struggle to find that historical example. Mm. Um, I think you're right, though, to say that all politics is local, and that applies particularly to communist China. That it's the history of that nation is one of remarkable dislocation over the last two hundred years, and that puts a primacy on centralised. Control. I mean, the reason they are so oppressive towards the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, towards Hong Kong more recently, towards Tibet, 
is because they fear that internal fracturing um, far more than they actually look for for empire abroad. I think in some ways their imperial ambitions are much more circumspect and circumscribed by these domestic imperatives. I mean, China since 49 um, was a nation in, in a state of almost perpetual turmoil. And it's only through the, the, uh, the, ex the exertion of remarkable and brutal force from the center, killing millions of people in the process not without some success economically, of course, and lifting people out of poverty. But that notion that you need a very, very strong centralised Beijing in order to effect this, this elusive security remains, I think, front and centre in the psychological approach of Xi Jinping and the party that he leads. That makes me think that foreign adventurism is not high on his agenda. OK, he may play silly buggers with Taiwan and threaten Taiwan, and in part, he can't really escape that legacy. It, it's, it's so woven into, into historical Chinese narratives. But I also think it, the, the more he, he speaks up Taiwan as, as an inevitable um, part of the, of the mission of his government, the more we should think, actually, he's probably not going to act on this. The, the only other thing I'd say in connection to that is to contrast it with the United States. The United States occupies a relatively benign neighbourhood. It's got neighbours to the south that want to join it. I mean, that's its great border problem at the moment. And to its north is a very peaceful, rich nation, Canada. Whereas China is surrounded by nations that don't trust it. Um, it gives America the capacity, there, therefore, to project its power, because it's doing so from a benign uh, neighbourhood, whereas it makes China cautious internally and in its immediate vicinity. And that, to me suggests it's not about to start invading parts of the world. It's rather bemused when it sees America do that. I mean, the Middle East, the, the Chinese communists have always struggled to explain the realism underlying America's Middle East wars. They were just a way of weakening US power. It's not something that China is prepared to, 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 to step into. Um, so you've got a cautious power, I think, in China, much more than you've got a, a, an expansion expansionist one. Mm. One of the differences, though, between now and the 1930s that makes me quite nervous is the sense that we don't have any heroes. I mean, regardless of what you think of Church Churchill or, or Roosevelt, they were up to the task of fighting Stalin and Hitler. Is there anyone today on the political stage who, just in terms of character, you think uh, is capable of leading the Western world if war breaks out? No. Is the short answer, but of course, great, great men uh, are the and women are the products of 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 historical context. Churchill was a failure in the nineteen thirties. Mm. He was a kind of crazy man, always warning about this threat that people thought was wouldn't uh, wouldn't eventuate, and he did eventuate, and he was right and became a hero in facing it down. So it's hard to know without the crisis what kind of heroic leadership might actually be out there we don't yet recognise. We're in a, I mean, despite what the, the headlines say, we're in a, we're moving in, let me argue, into potentially a period of significant peace and prosperity. We're through the worst, touch wood, please God, through the worst of COVID. Um, it's led to an expansion of government power, 
But those making the claim tend to be the mediocrities that have a vested interest in the perpetuation of the bureaucracies which surround public health and the various emergencies attached to it. I think we don't need great leaders at this at this point. Um, China, China has a great leader in part because it it means it's a demonstration of its weakness. One could argue it's vested so much mm. a system which is supposed to be democratic in and of itself, of course, run by one party, but it's supposed to be uh, immune to the to the effects of of individual personalities. It's supposed to respond to historical scientific forces. And yet it's great men, singular leaders, uh, that define its, its, uh, its, de- its dependence. Um, so you've got Mao and you've got Xi. And I think in some ways these demonstrate the consequences of not having these great men. Whereas the United States, as a matter of historical record, has done really pretty well. It's had three or four indisputably great men across 25 decades of its existence, most of them have been pretty grey and forgettable. But it's been under the leadership of these grey, forgettable men that America has risen. Um, so, no, you're, to answer your question, do have we got heroes? No. But do we need them? I, I, I kind of think we do, though. I mean, I think all the way from nation-states down to social causes... I believe in so many social causes at the moment, but I don't trust the movement itself, whether that be with climate change, um, whether that be with uh, a country. Um, I, you know, I believe, I want America to um, be able to perpetuate uh, what little left of Western democracy we still have, but I don't, I don't have much faith in the movement in that sense, the leaders um, going about doing it. I mean, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, just seem to be if not incompetent, at least corrupt. Yes, and I share some of that. I just don't think a great man unlocks that. Uh, it's hard to know who, if you could create a figure in, in the US political scene, who would that figure be that could bring both sides together? I thought it was going to, I thought, I thought it was going to be Bernie Sanders, which is why I was so kind of... Well, it could be, but, but you'll be serious about these things. Bernie Sanders, I mean, he, he, he provokes as much opposition as he... As he generates, he's hardly a solution to the problem. But he seems like uh, one of the few honest politicians in. Um, as in far the US as you, at the you connect honesty to being a left-wing ideologue, I mean, I don't think <laughs> there's anything more honest about him than 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 um, Glenn uh, Yenkin on the on the Republican side. Mm. I, I I don't. America is a matter of of its founding principles. Is is it's a supposed to be a machine that will go of itself. It does not require great leaders. And I suppose the, the way to challenge that conception is, well, it needed great leaders at the moment of its greatest trial. At, at its beginning, it, it came up with George Washington. And in the civil, I nearly said the first civil war, perhaps we'll get into that. Um, but the civil war of 1861-65, it, it, they, they got... Um, Lincoln and Second World War, they got FDR, but it, it's the it's it's the great crises that bring forward the great leaders, not the great leaders that uh, that arise with a and, and go out to find the crisis to solve. Mm. I just kind of think. I mean, I've had this discussion with a few of my friends before, and 
you'll often get people say it's about a, a social cause and people say that most social causes these days have uh, a lot of overreach, um, whether it's the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement when it got into the territory of saying, you know, all white people are inherently evil. And I just think for a social cause to work, no matter how justified it is to begin with, in order for it to work, every aspect of the argument has to be meticulously and well articulated. And without a leader who can uh, rein in the... Um, more incorrect aspects of of an ideology, whether that be, you know, saying all white people are inherently evil. I just think things kind of go out of control. And that sort of seems to me what's happened with the environmental movement or the climate change movement. And um, uh, I just sort of think we need need those characters. But Yes. I, I mean, I, I share some of that. I think democracies... It's true of the United States particularly. They're not only there. They need consensus for leadership to matter. And unless mm. a leader can actually articulate that consensus, well, you won't get you won't get significant leadership. You'll, you'll just get dissensus. And that seems to me the moment we're in now where there seem to be a set of challenges but no real consensus on which one is, is central. And we, we know the elites invest a huge amount of t- government elites, media, cultural elites, elites invest a huge amount of time and energy in climate change as the cause, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the number one issue facing the non-elites. I mean, job insecurity, the after effects of COVID, um, there are a number of challenges that face the world that aren't refracted, I think, through the elite obsessions. Now, whether that, I mean, I, I don't believe in the magic bullet solution of uh, having a great leader who can articulate where we, where we go to to realize the sunny uplands of progress i think democracy is a, is a is a pretty messy but necessary business of finding solutions of of not, not it's not about posit- it's not about i think finding um uh, easy answers to 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 big questions mm. i think democracy is not it's about struggling through, get, doing the best we can with a rather limited set of tools uh, opposed to us. But as you uh, given to us, but as you s- suggest, we are in that in that phase of our of world history where we expect governments to have the answers to what are defined as systemic problems. Mm. So issues of race, of gender, of, of climate change. These aren't responsive, the theory goes, to commonsensical responses. What they require is huge expansions of government power and regulation Mm. um, and training and behaviour modification, uh, which unfortunately creates as much opposition in its execution as it does amelioration of the identified problem. But it, but it bolsters the institutions is what you're saying and great leaders only seem great in retrospect but perhaps it's the society and how it was structured that got us through any crisis we've ever had. Yes. Uh, yes I'd still rather be a, a deficient democracy facing down the, the challenges that we mm. face than, than a dictatorship of the, of the Chinese kind. Well, that's, that's, that's Russia for you. I mean, you couldn't get a more charismatic leader than Putin and yet he's... Yeah. I mean, that's all they are, really. I mean, it, so much of their influence comes down to the charisma 
of 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 the leader and yet russia faces immeasurable challenges on so many different levels which the fact of a great leader kind of conceals whereas the democracy i mean australia i mean it's gone through a period of turmoil and lockdown and you could say its leader is a kind of mediocre marketeer but in some ways that doesn't matter because the the, the system is strong enough for the for for the quality of the leaders not to matter that much I mean, Australia over the last 15 years has had some pretty forgettable prime ministers and they all keep stabbing each other in the back. And yet it's been a period of remarkable prosperity and, and, and growth. Um, where, whereas China, is, it, it's, it, it seems to think it can only succeed by having a Mao or a Deng or a Xi. Perhaps, I mean, perhaps there may be some truth in that, that it needs these great men to effect the revolutions. But they are then dependent on the on the charisma and, and the, the maintenance of power by the one man. And we all know, final point, that all great leaders fade and they all die. None have come up with a, a way of, of, of living forever. Uh, and if they don't leave in place the system, well, then the, the systems they do leave in place are vulnerable. And democracy, without being perfect, doesn't suffer from that, that want, that deficiency. Could you explain the details of the recent AUKUS agreement and its significance? Well, AUKUS, I think it symbolically is very important. Practically, I think it's a bit more problematic. But symbolically, it's a way of the great English-speaking democracies, and that sounds old-fashioned, but as again, as a matter of historical record, it's enjoyed remarkable utility in facing down its opponents. Um, it's a way of affirming the enduring symbolic value of that alliance. The practical problem is that this symbolism is grounded in a weapon system, which is going to be prey. First of all, it's, we're probably 20 years out from mm. having any sort of nuclear sub in a port in Australia. And what it doesn't answer is the immediate uh, military need, naval need that we have in the interim. So uh, I think it's it's probably appropriate to posture uh, and and celebrate how far it bar- it makes America central to Australian security. But the next question is well what what are the what's the practical impact of that? Um what what will we do apart from hoping America would come to our aid in the interim and that's not really been addressed. It's kicked the can down the road. So I think AUKUS is a natural uh, sequel to ANZUS. But ANZUS, of course, itself relied on a hopefulness on Australia's part towards its big American friend. And AUKUS doesn't really change that very much. That's what worries me is it obviously is the direction we need to head in, but I just wonder whether it started a clock in Xi Jinping's head where now he knows that he's only going to be strategically weaker in 20 years than he is right now, and I'm just worried that it's going to make him feel cornered. Yes, it's difficult for him to feel cornered if we don't actually have the capacity that we will only get once he's dead (laughs) into the 2040s. Um, So it's hard to know. I mean, I suppose he's a survivor, like any great Chinese leader, and I think he understands power... Um, even outside of the Chinese system, better than we may may appreciate. And he may well calculate that my threats towards Australia 
have backfired, that we're not the Solomon Islands. We're a significant economic actor. We have a lot of the stuff China needs to keep powering its economy, like iron ore and coal. Um, and to threaten us into, into the right kinds of behaviour hasn't worked. So I just wonder whether AUKUS is, is a demonstration of Xi Jinping's failure um, and that if he finds himself boxed in, it's because he's created the box. Mm, I feel he lashed out a bit too early. Like where Hitler was diplomatically duplicitous but, you know, friendly right up until the point that he declared war, has Xi shown his hand too soon, do you think, and has it put countries on high alert sooner than he would have liked them to? Yes, I think there's probably a bit of that. I mean, I, I think there's a real problematic analogy here between Hitler and, and Xi Jinping. Um, is it rude to, absolute, is rude to Hitler or rude to Xi Jinping? Oh, no, I think it, I, I think it's, well, I mean, I, I think it's a problematic analogy because um, I see an, in Hitler there was an opportunist that would push against barriers and when they, the barriers fell, he kept going. Where with Xi, I think we'd understand him as instinctively cautious, not expansionist, who plays a much more transactional game than Hitler understood. I don't see Xi. I think ideology is important to him, but the ideology gets refracted through a very transactional approach to foreign affairs. He doesn't want to control large parts of the globe. He simply wants, in the short term, I think, needs access to markets and particularly to carbon resources to maintain the economy which gives his regime the stability it needs. I, I, I think the analogy with, with, with Germany 1930s is, is, becomes really quite stretched in, 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 in that regard. I think the, the approach of both regimes is, is quite, quite different. And to go back to where we started, Xi Jinping as a realist recognises just how much national interest is woven in Chinese national interest is woven into the success of the United States. And fascism never read the world in those terms. It, it defined um, security as, as victory, as destruction of the opposition. It's hard to see how the Chinese Communist Party would maintain power if some of its largest markets were, were d destroyed. Mm. And to what you were saying about the comparison between Hitler and Xi not necessarily being accurate. It's also I kind of just see Xi as almost like a mafioso, like a head of a cartel almost, um, whereas I see Hitler as a lot more, his ideological convictions were a lot more strong, whereas I think, yeah, Xi just uses these ideas uh, as a way of bending people to his will. Yes, I mean, I, I think we need to talk to a political psychologist here because they're both a fascinating study, but all, mm. all dictators... All autocrats, almost by definition, are fascinating mm. psychological studies, um, and I'm sure there's, there are common traits across every uh, autocrat. But I just wonder whether this one is a, an especially helpful one. Uh, but I think you, the I mean, you don't have to leave China. I think to look for the analogs. The obvious analog is 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 Mao. Mm. I mean, quite self-consciously on Xi's part, uh, and, and Mao as any Chinese communist official will tell you, at least off record, Mao was 70% right. 
So there was an acknowledgement that Mao did a lot of good, but he wasn't perfect. Um, and I think she should be seen in that mold, that he, he, he is capable of pulling back in a way that Hitler was not. Um, his, Hitler's, Hitler's genius, his evil genius in some way, was to know no capacity for compromise, for retreat, whereas I think Chinese communist power is very capable of of backward steps mm. oh, and its instinctive caution rather than its adventurism is 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 its defining characteristic mm. i sort of see though a parallel between the morality and that's such a sort of vague thing to discuss when talking in geopolitical terms but I was having this conversation um, at the start of the year actually on the podcast with another guest and was make, I was making the same comparison and he was pushing back against it. Um, but the reason I make the comparison is specifically with the example of the Uyghurs. And in the 1930s, Hitler had not done anything as bad in that realm as Xi Jinping has done. Um, he hadn't locked up nearly as many um, people in the concentration camps as Xi Jinping has locked up the Uyghurs. And I just think it's a indication of the and the limits he's willing to to go to to get what he wants the evil he's capable of to get what he wants yes well I, I mean I I see I see the analysis I just I think Hitler cannot be explained without his genocidal anti-semitism it's what Nazism is mm-hmm. I don't think Chinese communism needs to be Islamophobic. I mean, one of its closest relationships is Pakistan, the mm-hmm. Islamic Republic of Pakistan. This tends, to, this illustrates to me its fundamentally transactional nature. Its assault on the Uyghurs, its re-education of the Uyghurs, and 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 its concentration camps for them, I think is much more to do with reasons of internal stability, and this 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 fear of Chinese. Um, China breaking up, then it is an ideological struggle or a genocidal struggle against an inferior race. That doesn't explain, I think, why it's taken these steps. And I'd see them in the same same way as it, 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 its its control, its tyranny over uh, Tibet, or its repression in Hong Kong. They're not grounded, I think, in ideological or racial terms. Um, they're, they're, they're explained by the, a, a, a millennia-long fear of um, instability and chaos. I'd agree with and you. That, that's what separates it, I think, from the Third Reich. Mm, I'd agree with you on that, except for the fact that um, the Uyghur situation isn't just a matter of re-education, re, re-educating the Uyghurs. It's a matter – I mean, they've sterilised almost all the women now. And I sort of see – kind of reminds me of the germophobia and sort of – um, of, of the Third Reich and the, you know, emphasis on cleanliness and purifying the German race. I mean, why I just see the, the sterilisation of all Uyghur women as just a sort of sleight-of-hand way of committing a genocide. Yes, okay. I mean, I do, I recognise the argument without... I, yes, no, because nobody would defend um, the treatment of the Uyghurs. I, I, I would just argue with what's motivating it. And, mm. and also China and this is not to applaud it, but it is, of course, to recognise it, has a notion of the, of population control, which we in the West would just, we have got no vocabulary for it. The idea you could restrict families to, to one male, which is essentially what 
becomes the, the consequence of the one-child policy. But that, that's done not for reasons of, of, of ideology, but for national survival. I mean, as then, it's now turned out to be a catastrophic error. Then They're now deficient in the young people necessary to fund an increasingly elderly population. But it's that concern with, with social stability, political stability, that drives the repression much more than it, it is notions of kind of hand supremacy or even of communist supremacy. That's, that's the difference. I mean, the Holocaust was informed by a genocidal, irrational um, assault on a people that really were doing no harm at all. Uh, gypsies and, and, and LGBT people and, the, and Jewish people, of course. I mean, it's, it's fundamental irrationality which is which is needs to be be remarked upon the repression of the Uyghurs and of the Hong Kongers and the Tibetans it's appalling but there is a there is a rational basis for it there's a reason why it's happening it's yes there is a and there was not a reason for the holocaust except genocidal hatred i don't think that explains the the chinese communist approach to these to these minorities hmm. Do you think the US will support Taiwan's independence if China invades? Because I know I know Biden had said a couple of weeks ago that they would stand by Taiwan, but then the White House later that day came out and said uh, what the president has said doesn't signify any change in our policy. So it's a bit unclear where America stands. And are they perhaps maintaining a bit of geopolitical ambiguity so that, again, Xi doesn't feel cornered to the point of starting a hot war? Yes, I think there's a bit of strategic ambiguity built into this this relationship. I mean, in in the Cold War, America made very clear that if the communists, if the Soviet Union used Cuba as a base to negate, if not attack, uh, the United States, that would be... uh, viewed as as an act of war necessitating a military response, the geostrategic analog to Cuba is in in China's backyard is Taiwan. I mean, there's many we keep talking about analogies. It's a very powerful one. They're both unsinkable aircraft carriers lying off only a, a, a hundred miles or so off the coast of of their their, their the main mainland. Both viewed by the, the mainland governments with scepticism and enmity, Cuba and Taiwan. And I think that's not an unhelpful way of explaining what the American connection to Taiwan might look like. The Soviet Union had a circumscribed attachment to Cuba, um, but it liked to keep America guessing about what the extent of the, the commitment was. I think every American administration since the communist revolution, uh, since, since Taiwan um, since '49 and Taiwan, Taiwanese independence, um, every American president has tried to sow doubt in the minds of Beijing as to what they would actually do if Beijing acted on its long-standing historical territorial claim. And I think Biden's no different in, in that regard. I, I also, I think Taiwan risks so much. Um, in, it's hard to know what. China could get from it. I mean, even if it could realise the initial fruits of an invasion, a swift invasion, and even that is that's called into question. It's a very militarised 
island Taiwan, even if it could do that, the costs it would pay in terms of its alienation from the global community, an overused phrase, but here I think it matters, and from what that would do in pushing America to be, again, the leader of the response, I cannot see that any Chinese leader would see, on a cost-benefit analysis, would see greater benefit from that kind of action than, than, than cost. And Biden and whoever else follows him knows that. And, I, and I'll be right until, of course, they do launch the invasion. There's nothing in recent Chinese history to suggest a physical kinetic invasion of that island is, is imminent. What are the nuclear capabilities of the West and the rest? I mean, as far as hypersonic missiles go, um, how, how much land can each bomb destroy? Yes, I mean, I think, I think that's a good question. Um, historically, innovation in weapons leads inevitably to their use. Um, so the, the question becomes, does that, does that apply to, to nukes? Um, of course, they were used as soon as they had them, but only only twice to, to end a war in '45. So nu- nu- nuclear weapons are both crucial in explaining world order and kind of tangential. Uh, they're, they're important because every great power either has them or aspires to has the, have, have them for reasons of their own aggrandizement and security. But they're also tangential because they're impossible to conceive of the use without inviting the annihilation of the of the the, the first user. Um, the, the question you ask about hypersonic missiles does make nuclear the nuclear capacity a, a more acute problem than perhaps we've we've treated treated it as. It's it's made the it's made the arms race a lot more dynamic, hasn't it? Because the air defense systems are variable now. Yes. That, I mean that's it. I mean, the, it it's not it's never been a nuclear capacity which has transformed a state's prestige or its security um, standing. It's always been the delivery system. And with the the very fast-paced now development of hypersonic missiles, what you've got is a revolution in delivery systems. So you could actually now conceive of a nuclear strike which happens so quickly against an opponent, that opponent couldn't respond. Traditionally, that's not been the case. You'd get, I mean, you know, the great film War Games, that's built on the notion of that you can see the attack coming for a couple of hours before the missiles strike. With hypersonic missiles, that window is much narrower. It incentivizes states, I mean, at least in theory, incentivizes states to consider the use of nuclear weapons um, because they may get away with it. Still, there's a lot of conjecture built into that that theory, but it, but states are pursuing hypersonic this hypersonic capacity for a reason, um, and the reason might be first use, okay, but it also I think might be just as a way of bolstering deterrence. If you've got an, a, a way of actually striking an opponent, and the opponent knows that, you will get uh, a balance. You will get deterrence. Well, and that, that's why states like China and the, and the US are investing heavily in the technology. Well, is the CCP winning the arms race at the moment? Because that hypersonic missile that they tested uh, a few weeks ago, I can't remember whether it was in an actual interview of General Milley or if someone was quoting him, but apparently all the American generals are shitting themselves 
about this new missile that they launched? Yes, well, it's in the interest, of course, of the Department of Defense in the US always to exaggerate the capacity that the opponents have. And sometimes that's right, sometimes that's wrong. China is still circumscribed by access to technology, which you can only really get through espionage um, in the West. I mean, it does invest significantly in research and development, but what it doesn't have is a free market system. It doesn't have a Silicon Valley that does a lot of the heavy lifting in the United States and the West more generally without the necessity for government control. So the Chinese communists have got to come up with a way of a centralised command economy run according to the dictates of a, a 19th century German economist They've got to come up with a way of using that infrastructure to to best the technological innovation, which the West is far better at. Mm. Now, it's made great strides when it comes to missiles, um, but they've always come up against, I think, uh, the technological limits imposed by their system. Whereas the US, even though we know the US faces significant problems, it's still the great engine for technological innovation from 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 iPads to to weapon systems. Um, And I I don't see that China is is going to be able to play that game if and when America really starts to take the threat of of this new technology seriously. Is the greatest catastrophe of the withdrawal from Afghanistan the fact that it has perhaps instilled an isolationist sentiment within America? And are Americans going to be hesitant to get involved other citizens at least, not going to quite want to get involved in Taiwan when they've so recently seen the flaws of policing the world? Yes, it's a good question. I think that you could have two contrary answers. The first one is that, yes, the, the embarrassing, humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan has convinced Americans the world is not for it, better to look after its own interests, uh, insulate itself from the world, be isolationist. The, I think that as plausible, if not more plausible, explanation is America is now looking for a way to replenish, restore its prestige, which took a terrible knock. Mm. The point of Afghanistan was not to advance isolationism. It was to free up time so it could focus particularly on the Indo-Pacific. So it's, it's, it, it is, a, I mean, the, the scenes will last for a very long time, the abandonment of this people that you'd laboured and that they had laboured for 20 years um, to realise the freedom of suddenly just being abandoned. But the consequence of that could well be a much more emboldened United States, complicated, of course, by the nature of of the American administration we currently have. But the analogue here, another analogue for our viewers, would be the consequences of withdrawal from Vietnam, ignominious, humiliating, the abandoning of a free people. And yet within the space of one presidential administration, um, we we got a return to great power um, expansionism, to Ronald Reagan, to sticking it to the Soviets. So America does have this elasticity built into itself, this capacity to remake um, the opportunities that that confront it in a way that its opponents have not. They've been flat-footed, I think in part because of the nature of the system, Fa- German fascism, uh, Japanese imperialism, uh, Soviet socialism, Chinese communism. 
they're all in some way, and they lack this elasticity, this capacity to remake themselves. America still has that. Uh, and I, I put a lot of faith and trust in that. The American go, can go through really difficult periods of internal turmoil, of profound dislocation and decline, but still stay together and still come out on the right side of history. Will that ever stop? Well, I mean, all great power eventually starts to fade. The question is, is it fading now or are we just in a moment of recalibration? Um, but I, I... The interview, I, it asked me in 10 years. Yeah, we'll do another one then. I, I'm just one, worried, though, that... I mean, I think the, the worst thing about Trump was, ironically, the thing that no one ever criticised him for, really, was his um, isolationism and the fact that he was breaking up these alliances. He, he wasn't... He wasn't committed to funding NATO the way the previous, previous administration had. And I I mean, I don't know what you think about it, but I reckon Trump's coming back and going to win in 2024 easily, the way, the way the political landscape's looking. And if he does, then we're committed to at least another four years of isolationism at the period when this conflict is most likely going to play out, if it ever does. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm sympathetic to that argument. I think there's, it's not impossible... I think it's hard to imagine Trump winning, but not impossible to imagine. Mm. Would it be 80, 81, 82 at that point? He will then be, become the oldest president in American history. And we've uh, and the way he won in 2016, of course, was a kind of razor-edge affair. We just was able to mobilise the right demographics in the right states to get him over the line. That's always, with every subsequent election starting to... Um, favor his opponent rather than himself and favor the, the the democrats over the republicans year on year so it's possible for him to do it but is the ineptitude of the biden administration enough to alter the the, the really narrow window of opportunity that would be presented to him i think we've we've seen i mean it, it, we should always be skeptical i think of using one election or in one state as a signifier of what's to come but I, I would I, I would look at Virginia, and Virginia was bad news for Trump because it showed you could have Trumpism, but in a more with a more humane face that you could mobilize the base without having to use Donald Trump to do it and thus alienate uh, the anti-Trump voters. If Republicans can be clever and savvy, then they then I think somebody like a Youngkin or somebody of that that ilk. Could present themselves as a as a strong opponent against a very very fading and elderly Biden by that point, or a Kamala Harris, who I imagine a lot of Republicans are rubbing their hands with glee in anticipation that she will be the nominee. The, uh, the nominee. So it, I, I I think things aren't as gloomy for the Republicans after Virginia as as. Some have predicted, but I also don't think that means necessarily that Trump is a certainty for 24. Last question for you, Tim. I don't know if there's anything to this, but is it a coincidence that just before the Second World War, again with the analogies, Germany hosted the Olympics and now China is about to host the Olympics? I mean, is a, is a spectacle and sort of national PR event that is the Olympics part of the equation for a dictator about to assert his dominance on the world stage? Or is that too? 
No, I don't. Think, I mean, it hosted the Olympics in in two thousand and eight, and that that the logic might have applied even more forcefully then than it than it does now. I, I, I think the the communists are very invested in the Olympics as as showing China as a as a global as a global power, but also one that wants to lead the world rather than then create uh, a kind of an alliance against it. I mean, there are political motivations underlying every Olympic Games, but in this one, I think it's not about asserting Chinese supremacy, but showing China is is successful, is a is a team player. But that's the an Nazi important Olympics. But that's an imp- to be a very different uh, dif- different thing. But isn't that an important variable in trying to convince the rest of the world that you should now be the new superpower? Look how great our country is. Look how well we can... Yes, I mean, it's a good question. It's a way of displaying power. But are Olympics really that consequential? We had the the Moscow Olympics in 1980 Mm -hmm. and and the Soviet Union didn't see out the decade. Uh, So, no, I think think using sport as as an obvious signifier of, of global standing is 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 not a is not is not reliable. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks for your time again, Tim. And um, I always love having these are probably my favourite conversations to have. Uh, just having someone I can nerd out about all this stuff with. And you're, it's it's lovely to have you say that. And I'm always delighted to speak to you, Julius. You ask big, important questions and, and cause me to rethink some of my uh, my assumptions. Thanks so much for that, Tim. And um, yeah, speak soon. Take good care.